Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. If you would, turning your Bibles to Luke, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Take that back, Luke 23. Luke chapter 23, keep it on your toes, making sure you're awake. Thank you for being here uh, to celebrate the cross of Christ. Um, I can think of no uh, better way to spend our, our Friday evening leading up to Resurrection Sunday than thinking uh, about <coughs> than thinking about the cross uh, of our Lord. I'm going to read our text this evening as we begin. We'll be looking at Luke. Chapter 23, verses 44 through 56. It was, my, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw that what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision in action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been yet laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Let's pray one more time together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that we're able to sing. Thank you for the gift of music, Lord, where we can express truth to you, where we can proclaim and, and give you 
what you rightly deserve in praise and in worship, and it aids us in that. So thank you. Thank you for the work um, that Jonathan and our team has put into tonight and this weekend, and just the great gift that music is to us. I pray now, Lord, as we consider Christ Jesus and his cross, that you would, you would teach us, you would lead us. God, you know our tendency to look at great things and consider great things and be unmoved because of the routine nature here. But Lord, just open our eyes to your truth and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Sorry about that. Man, I sing that song knowing that I'm guilty. <laughs> and uh, I've been pardoned by the blood of the Lamb, and it's just, just powerful. So, the Webster's Dictionary defines oxymoron as a combination of contradictory words or ideas. We use that term oxymoron, it's, it's a combination of contradictory words or ideas. To give a few, we, we throw out the term jumbo shrimp or bittersweet, or civil war, or deafening silence. We, or or should I say Hillary, has been all too aware of the oxymoronic phrase, sleeping like a baby, (laughs) here lately. And we see that the kingdom of God works in a seemingly contradictory way. Jesus said that if you would lose your life for his sake, you will find it. Jesus says the way to be exalted is to be humbled. Jesus says uh, the greatest among you must become as a servant. Jesus says blessed are those who mourn, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Paul goes on to say in his epistles that he has this theme that suffering produces glory in the life of the believer and that believers can have a joyful sadness. Well, all really pale in comparison to the name that we have adopted for this day, Good Friday. On the surface level, it seems oxymoronic contradictory that we would refer to this day in the life of the Christian as good. As we have read through the narrative of Luke these past few Sundays, what about this situation? Again, surface level, could we say is good? We see on the surface level a, an awful story of injustice of an innocent man But for the believer with the eyes of the Spirit, we rejoice in this day because we, like Barabbas, are murderers and thieves and rebels against the rule of God, but yet are set free while an innocent takes our place. This message, though foolishness to the world, according to 1 Corinthians 18, is the message that saves and it is the message that sanctifies. I was a little worried about preaching this text because I've never really dealt with the narrative version of the death of Christ. 
All of our sermons ultimately culminate in the work of Christ, which includes his death. But I've, I've never really dealt with the three hours uh, that he endured God's wrath. But I trust um, that, that the Spirit of God tonight will open our eyes to see this in a new and fresh light. I know that I could never do justice to looking at the death of Christ in one sermon because we will spend all eternity celebrating that truth. Human language and metaphors fall woefully short in seeking to describe what actually happened at the cross of Christ. But I, again, I trust the God's spirit tonight. So let's look at the text this evening. First, we see the death of Jesus. Luke breaks up this narrative into three points. I was joking with Brother David and, and Jonathan the other day as we were talking just about every pastor having a good old three-pointer. And I didn't intend for it to be that way. That's just how the text naturally breaks up. There are three nows where Luke transitions his thoughts. And so we, we're going to look at those three points drawn from the word of God. And the first is the death of Christ, the death of Jesus in verses 44 through 46. All the physical torment of Jesus leads up to what will happen in this text. In these three hours, the physical pain of Jesus is a part of his sufferings on our behalf, but is not the central focus of the Christian message. In Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, which I assume that most of us in here have seen, they spent 40 minutes given to the physical sufferings of Jesus, his beatings, his floggings, being nailed to the cross, 40 minutes, and only a few short minutes given to the three hours that he endured the wrath of God. Beatings, a crown of thorns, and the physical agony of crucifixion, those things are not the weight of this work. But these three hours are. The physical sufferings were not unique to Christ. Thousands and thousands of people died under the awful truth of, of crucifixion and suffered the same physical pains that he suffered. Yet at the same time, included in our text tonight, no one suffered like he suffered. The text says that Look at the text. It says that the sun's light, the sun's light, fed. it was now about the sixth hour, which is 12 p.m. on the, uh, on the Jewish uh, timeline. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. on the Jewish timeline. Verse 45, the very beginning of that says, while the sun's light failed, the sun's light failed. What is the significance of this darkness as Jesus hangs on the cross for these three hours? What is the significance of, this, of the darkness? Is it a natural phenomenon? Is it a solar eclipse? What is happening here? And so throughout the story of Scripture, we see an issue 
beginning at the fall of man. We come to find out that God is righteous and holy. He is perfect in all his ways. He is pure and righteous and undefiled. A God who cannot be indifferent to sin of which we are consumed. We see a God who must be just as the judge of all the earth in carrying out retribution to the guilty. And you and I are guilty. We are lawbreakers. The, at the heart of our issue is a, is a fallen nature, is a heart that desires our own way, our own glory, our own praise. And so the Bible makes clear that God is not neutral and cannot be neutral towards sin or sinners. Psalm 7 verse 11 says that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. We read in the Old Testament and a few references in the New that darkness in, in the Bible, there is a direct connection with the day of the Lord. We, we read about it at the very end of our scripture reading, that you should, you should be gathering as the church all the more as you see the day appearing, talking about the day of judgment. The Old Testament refers to it as the great and terrible day of the Lord. In some, it's just referred to as the day. In Joel chapter two, verses one through two, I'm gonna read this to us because I think we get a, a picture of what this darkness signifies. Joel 2 verse 1 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains and a great and powerful people like there has never been before, nor will there be again after them through the years of all the generations. And then in Revelation chapter six, verse 12, again, referring to the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of judgment, it says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon like blood. We can understand the darkness to represent the judging presence of God as he punishes his son. There are, there are four people on Golgotha that day. There's the thief who did not repent. There's the thief who repented. There's Jesus and there is the presence of God the Father pouring out a just penalty for sin on God the Son. The wrath of God and really the idea of sin has fallen on hard times in the church today. But we must understand, to rightly understand the gospel, that the issue with us and God is our sin. That that what Christ is dealing with in these three hours is sin. Our greatest issue is not our circumstances or our surroundings. And Jesus did not die on the cross 
to make our, our dreams come true or, or just to be a model of love and self-sacrifice, there is payment happening in these three hours and it centers on sin. We must understand sin, that he is paying for sin under the, the wrath of God. The Bible in the New Testament, there are a few different scripture references to this word I'm going to use it. It's big. You know, I'm not smart. Anybody knows me. I'm not smart. I'm not trying to sound smart when I say this word. Propitiation. Propitiation. That's a Bible word. In Romans chapter three, I want to read verses 23 through 25 for us because this will help us understand what is actually happening here. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that one, Romans Road. 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is a word that means to divert wrath. It means to appease or satisfy the wrath of God. And so we see here and get a hint into what is actually happening when the, when the judging presence of God falls on Christ Jesus. First John 2, 2, Jesus himself is the propitiation, satisfaction for our sins. And church, the reality is, is that you and I can offer nothing to appease the just penalty for sin that we, that we owe. There's, there's nothing, there's no good amount of good deeds that we could muster up in our own strength to try, and, to try and appease the wrath of God. World religions call for action on the part of the individual to appease the wrath of their God. But in Christianity, God makes provision for us in the person of Jesus to appease that just penalty that we deserve. God made provision for Adam and Eve in, in killing an animal in the garden when they fell. God made provision for his people in Egypt when the blood of the lamb, right, he would pass over them on the night of Passover. God made provision for his people in the Old Testament in the sacrificial system. On the day of atonement, there was a constant reminder of their sin and the just penalty for sin. And God has graciously put forward Jesus as a propitiation, a sacrifice that turns away wrath for us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. This three-hour span here is, is explained by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. We, we, we say it often in the life of the church, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what's happening in these three hours. Peter explains these three hours in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And, and so in these three hours, God is heaping on Christ his, his holy and righteous anger against sin and for the sins of his people. 
Christ, the good news is that Christ did what the animal in the garden could not fully do, or the lamb amongst the Israelites in Egypt could not fully do, or what the sacrificial system could not fully do, in that he fully satisfied the righteous demands of God, the wrath of God. He satisfied it. That's what we read about in the beginning at Hebrews chapter 10, that Christ made one sacrifice for sin once and for all. Christ takes the wrath of God that sin deserves so that his disposition toward us might be favorable. All who are in Christ will never know the horrid occupation of bearing their own sin. But we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 103 verse 10 that God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. This is the central message of the Bible. This is the gospel, is the penalty and the payment for sin by the perfect son of God. The plan before the foundation of the world, the plan that found its climax in redemptive history, and it is the plan that we will be our eternal focus for all of eternity, singing praises to the lamb who is worthy. Wrath is taken. Wrath is diverted from us so that, Christ, so that God might look at us in favor because of the work of his son. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. Not only is his wrath diverted, we see in verse 45, look at verse 45, a way is made for sinners to draw near. If you read the Old Testament and you understand the, the temple and the tabernacle, that God commanded that a veil be made to separate the holy place from the most holy place where God would dwell, Exodus 26, and you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place where God would dwell, his presence dwelling above the ark of the covenant. And we know that sin has, has done that that sin has made a separation between us and God. That's what Isaiah 59 says. Our sins have made a separation between us and God. We see that in Adam and Eve after the fall. What, what does God do to them? He, he kicks them out of the garden, that there is a separation, a distance, that there is broken fellowship with God because of our willful disobedience to him. Anytime in the Bible that God dips down to, to dwell with his people, there must be a partition, right? So that, and only once a year, the high priest could enter in. That veil is symbolic of what sin does. And it literally kept the, the priest from entering into the Holy of Holies in the wrong way. But we see in the text that the veil was torn. Verse 45 and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God tore this veil symbolizing the end of the old covenant, that there would be no more priest, there would be no more sacrifices, no more temple, that Christ would fulfill all of those. God tore this veil symbolizing that the gates of redemption being flung wide open to all who would repent 
and believe. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has, listen, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So now that the veil is torn, Jew and Gentile can come in, that slave and free can come in, that male and female might come in, that Pharisee and prodigal might come in. I love the contrast between Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 through 12, and Hebrews chapter 10, the text that we read this evening. This is important. Exodus chapter 19, verses 10 through 12 say this. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And listen to verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of the mountain. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death because God was there. And now Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. You see the difference that that the wrath of God had not been appeased in the Old Testament and they had no freedom and no confidence whatsoever to approach the throne of God. But now, In light of the work of Christ, you and I can draw near, not only draw near, but with confidence to the God of all creation. The work of Christ gives a confidence to the Christian that the Old Testament saint never had. The Old Testament priest never had by the new and living way. And we draw near not not based on anything we've done, not based on our good deeds, not based on our good days, but Hebrews 10 says, based on the shed blood of Christ, draw near with confidence. And I don't feel that confident often as I struggle with my sin, but even as we sang that the blood pleads our innocence, silences the accuser so that we might have assurance that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Not only did Christ tear the veil through his work, but Hebrews, the chapter that we read this morning, the verse says that he is the veil, that Christ fulfilled the veil. It says a new and living way through the curtain, which is his flesh. So it's through Christ and Christ alone that we enter into the presence of the Father. Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way. John 10, 9, I am the door. He is the veil who was torn for us so that all who repent and believe might have confidence to draw near to God the Father. Christ turned the barrier into an entrance for sinners. Spurgeon says, Christ tore the veil from top to bottom so that big sinners like me might go in. Horatius Bonar has this quote. It's a, it's, it's a, I'm not going to read all of it, but it's important. He says, for every sinner without exception, that veil has a voice, that blood a voice, that mercy seat a voice. They say, come in. They say, be reconciled to God. They say, draw near. They say, seek the Lord while he may be found. To the wandering prodigal, the lover of pleasure, 
the drinker of earth's maddening cup, the dreamer of earth's vain dreams. They say there is bread enough in your father's house and love enough in your father's heart and to spare, return, return to each banished child of Adam, exiles from the paradise which their first father lost. These symbols with a united voice proclaim the extinction of the fiery sword, the reopening of the long barred gate with a free and abundant re-entrance or, or rather entrance into a more glorious paradise, a paradise that was never lost. So the tearing of the temple curtain not only signifies open access to a holy God, but also a restoration of what was lost in Eden. It signifies the inauguration of open fellowship with God as it is seen in Genesis 1 and 2, a fellowship for which we were created, a fellowship that will be unhindered by sin in the new heavens and the new earth. The veil was torn. In verse 46, we also see the, the willful laying down of Jesus's life. The willful laying down of Jesus's life. At this point in crucifixion, no criminal was really ever able to speak. Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. It's very clear that Christ is in control. Colossians tells us that he upholds the universe by the power of his word, that he commands and he controls all things, including his own death and the circumstances that surround it. His life was not taken but he, he willingly gives it up. He is a victor here, not a victim. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's his last call to God the Father. It says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We know that under the punishment, what did, what did Jesus cry out on the cross? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we see a return to the intimacy that existed before the foundation of the earth, before the father and the son, as he refers to him as father. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Though he had been at the hands of sinners in his death, he was returning to the hands of God the Father. The next transition in the text that Luke gives us as I try and move a little quicker, that was the, I was going to spend the most of my time tonight on that, on those few verses. That, that is at the heart of the Christian message. That, I mean, that is why we celebrate, because it was Christ and not us. But there's more here in the text. Look at verse 47 there is a response to his death. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. 
All the crowds had assembled for the spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their chest. And all his acquaintances, the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. So we see three responses here, don't we? We have the centurion, we have the crowd, and we have his disciples. The centurion says that he praised God and said, certainly this man was innocent. And in Matthew's account and Luke's account, we see that the centurion also said, truly this was the son of God. The centurion, as we know, was a, he, had a, he had a place in the, the Roman army over a century of men, over 100 men, a centurion. And he had been assigned to Jesus' death. So he had been there through most of this time. His soldiers had been there through most of this, through the entire trial, through the scourgings and through his cr- crucifixion. They had beat him. They had mocked him. They had seen the injustice that had gone on in the trial. And then we see the crowd that they returned home. It says beating their chest. And that's, that's a cultural way that we really don't, we don't, I don't hit my chest when I'm in angst. But that, that was a common cultural practice in expressing grief and angst. If you recall in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells that parable of a tax collector and of a sinner that both go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee is proud, the tax collector is humble, and it says that he called out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it says he he beat his chest. That's the same phrasing used about the crowds here. And so the darkening presence of God punishing Jesus prompted these responses The text doesn't give a verbal response for his followers. It says that they stood at a distance and watched, maybe grieving, maybe doubting, maybe without words. And so what are we to make of the response of these people? Did they become Christians? Well, it's, it's hard to tell from the text. We cannot be extremely positive. We can say, at least say that it's a step in the right direction. Some of the people in the crowd may have been in attendance at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, when Peter preached his sermon. Peter ended that text in Acts chapter two, verse 23. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter says this, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so no doubt some of these people that had been expressing grief grief at the death of Jesus were present at the day of Pentecost. And we know thousands were saved on that day. Whether the response was a genuine godly sorrow that led to repentance, we just, we cannot be fully certain. But we do know that this truth, according to scripture, demands a response. It demands a response. All the preaching in the book of Acts, Acts chapter two, verse 37 Peter preaches that message. And what's the response of the people? Brothers, what shall we do? And what does Peter say? He says, repent. In light of of you crucifying Christ, in light of the saving message of the gospel, you must repent. Paul and Silas, as they sang in prison and God came down and, and brought an earthquake 
Acts chapter 16, verse 30, the, the, prison, the, the, the jailer says, the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? They say, you, you need to repent. You need to believe. Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Paul says, I, I go everywhere and I preach repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so my call to you tonight is that if you are an unbeliever here, if you have confidence in your heart that you are far from God and you have never repented and trusted in Christ, that there is no evidence in your life of a, of a saving relationship with Jesus, that there is no fruit being born, the call is the same as it was then. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Agree with God about your sin. Turn from your sin and, and trust in the finished work of Jesus. Look away from yourself. Look away from your ability. Look away from your morality. Look away from, from your efforts to try and please God and look to Christ. If you are a believer here, how do we respond? Well, we can say we for sure respond like the centurion, don't we? We respond in praise, the praising of God. Respond in worship to God, not just outwardly, but beginning inwardly with gratitude of this truth that applies to you. That's, the, that's what we celebrate is that Christ died for us. Or if you're a believer here, let me ask this question because this is, this is often where we find ourselves. Have you, have you grown cold and indifferent to the work of Christ? Then even reading the Easter message, it just comes across your eyes as mundane or routine. That this glorious truth stirs little affection inwardly for you. The call is the same tonight, that we would, we would repent, that we would understand that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that we would take great joy in knowing that the Father beckons us back to himself, that we, that we repent for leaving our first love, that we, that we respond in repentance of any hidden sin that we're not dealing with, that we respond in joy to know that we now stand free of condemnation and righteous before God because of Jesus's work. And lastly, the burial of Christ, the burial. This is six verses that goes through 50 through 56. So Joseph of Arimathea was a, was a member of the Sanhedrin, member of the council. And what he does in this passage is extremely risky. Is that evidently, right, it's, the text says that he did not agree with their decision. And he was, he was looking for the kingdom of God. And so Joseph had, had maybe been a believer for a while, but had been hiding in the shadows. And at the death of Christ, he steps out risking his position, risking Right, his reputation. He and Nicodemus as well with him. 
The burial of Christ was fulfilled, Isaiah 53, 9. We know this text, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And so the burial of Christ assures us of all the promises that come alongside his death is that he really died. The burial of Jesus, Romans chapter six, assures us of the death of our old self. As for we were crucified with Christ and we were buried with him, Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The burial of Christ is a, right, is a part of this narrative that we just kind of overlook is insignificant, but there really is great weight and significance that the, that the Son of God really died and was buried. Christ was put to death and laid in the ground, having become a curse for us, for the curse of God placed on man. Genesis 3.19 says that to dust you shall return. And Christ is laid in the dust. He is laid in the ground as he has paid the full penalty of that curse. Now, the narrative ends, I think, on, on a, I want to close with this, looking at there are two things that we see in the close of this narrative, in the burial of Christ. Look at verse 54. It says, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The day of preparation was given to the people of God coming out of the Exodus, that they would be quick to prepare for the Passover, for the Passover meal. And so they would rid their homes of leaven. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, if there was a man who was hung, right, cursed is a man who hangs on the tree. We see that verse in Galatians. If there was a man who was hung on a tree leading up to the Passover, they needed to get his body off of the cross, off of the tree and put it outside the camp for what purpose? To, so as to not defile the camp. So in this verse, we see just the spiritual hypocrisy of the Jewish people. That they needed their wrongly accused, maliciously killed dead Messiah off the cross to keep them from becoming ceremonially unclean. How, how blind. But we've seen that is a continuous pattern in the life of God's people through the gospel of Luke. In the life of the Pharisees, so spiritually blind and hard-hearted. Jesus says that this people honors me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. A people so concerned with outer regulatory rituals that they're blinded to not only the truth of who Jesus is, but the condition of their own hearts before God. Always faithful to clean the outside of the cup. But are we much different than they Hopefully we are different in many ways than them, but in many ways we are a lot alike. We often find ourselves making a priority of, of outward acts and righteous deeds rather than inward worship 
between us and the Lord. We might elevate a tradition above a commandment. Or we might worship in full array on Sundays and neglect the ordinary means of grace that God has given us to worship throughout the week. We often sing prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And that is true of us, that we are prone to give our hearts to lesser things. But there is also great hope seen in the passage because that's not where we want to leave us tonight. It says that they returned and prepared spices and ointments. Look at verse 40, 56. On the Sabbath, they rested. You see that? On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. That there is great hope seen here. The Sabbath is drawn out from the seventh day of creation where God created on six days and he rested. And in the fullness of what it originally was that Adam and God would rest from their labors, reflect on all that was created. They would say that it was good and there was perfect fellowship. In the Old Testament, the people of God rested externally. That means ceasing from ordinary tasks in order to meet with God. And inwardly, it involves ceasing from all self-sufficiency in order to rest in God's grace. Considering this, then what difference did the coming of Jesus make to the Sabbath day? Is that there is hope for the hypocrite. There is hope for the prodigal wandering sheep, the one who is callousing his hands, the hands of his soul to try and earn the favor of God in the, the crucified, buried, and risen Christ, there is eternal rest for our souls. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm lowly of heart and find rest for your souls. The lost treasures of the Sabbath are restored in Jesus Christ. Christ gives us rest for the soul where you and I might lay aside all of our good deeds, all of our efforts, all of our self-sufficiency and have fellowship with God the Fire, God the Father. The goodness of Good Friday is seen in the substitutionary death of Christ for sinners and is culminated in his resurrection. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions, or if we can minister to you in any way, 
please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.